one of the things that will help us to know what it feels like to be one-pointed is if we use mindfulness in everyday life. Being attentive to what we are actually doing at each given moment. And we are, I have mentioned it at times, and it is a practice which is actually the most important thing we can do in our daily life because it is also the way we are able to label our thoughts and our emotions and are able to substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome. If we are not aware in daily living what we're doing, if we're not aware of what we're thinking, if we're not aware of what we're feeling, we're sort of going through life with only one real desire, comfort, self-cherishing, gratification of the senses. Knowing ourselves on a deeper level does not just come about through the meditation. Knowing ourselves at a deeper level comes about through being in each moment. And that needs to be practiced in everyday life. And as we practice watching our body movements, watching feelings and thoughts, we become more and more aware of the impermanence of each moment. Each moment is gone. And it also induces us not to waste them. It's a great boon to be born a human being <clears throat> with all one's limbs and senses intact and on top of that being able to hear and practice the true Dhamma. The gratitude for that should make it possible to see that as a priority and not as just one thing extra. Because the true Dhamma is us all the time. The impermanence of it is visible and feeling, possible in feeling all the time. The Buddha has said that sensual desires are like throwing a lot of different colors into a pond of water. The pond of water becomes so discolored that we can no longer see our likeness. So if that is really at the top of our mental state, we can't see it. And therefore meditation, which takes us away from that, even momentarily, is a cure. We can say that meditation, even momentarily being one-pointed, cures some of that confusion. The less ease and happiness there is in the mind, the more confusion. And that comes because of these discolored um, ponds that we're trying to see ourselves in. <coughs> when we have moments of clarity where all the mud has sunk to the bottom, where there's nothing but the still clarity of an unperturbed mind, we can see ourselves clearly.
Also, as a day-to-day antidote for the gratification of sensual desire, the Buddha recommended that we analyze what we're actually desiring. That we analyze it and see whether when we see its parts, whether it's still desirable. And when we see its parts, we may actually feel quite distant from it and we may actually feel quite indifferent towards that desire. So analysis is another part of the practice. Not just taking the things by their optical illusions. Our optics are not the way to believe the world. There's much to limit it. Our dreams and fantasies are also not the way the world looks. But our ability to have an unperturbed mind, our ability to have a mind which is on a different level, where it doesn't have to think, but experiences, that kind of mind knows much wider fields. These five factors arise in any concentrated meditation, but three of them arise in anything that can be called meditation. The one thing that cannot be called meditation is when we sit here and think. That obviously can't be called meditation. But when we punctuate that thinking by occasional bouts of concentration on the breath, those occasional bouts are already the beginning of meditation. Three of those five factors take place then. The first one is the initial application to the meditation subject. The second one is the sustained application. And the third one is the one-pointedness. So even if it is short-lived, it does counteract three of our hindrances. It counteracts loss and torpor in the mind, skeptical doubt, and the desire for sensual gratification. The only way we will ever find out that it's doing that if we understand the experience. So that's why at the end of any meditation which has taken place even for a short period of time, it is necessary to recapitulate what has taken place. That recapitulation takes several forms. The first one is to find out if it had been a good meditation, one which was actually really concentrated, how one got there. What actually did one do? And that includes all physical movements and all mental states that preceded the meditation. Drowsiness in the mind is, together with skeptical doubt, the two worst enemies to meditation. Because the drowsy mind doesn't know what it's doing and the skeptical uh, doubting mind doesn't want to do it. So if those things happen, one should know at the end that they have happened. Recapitulation. What did I do? That's an important aspect 
if it had been something that we can recapitulate that had some value the next question is what did I learn from that if the mind was very drowsy maybe one learned it would have been better not to eat so much that's very helpful if the mind was full of skepticism maybe one can learn from that 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 doesn't work for meditation if one has had gratitude and loving-kindness maybe one learns that that helps one has to evaluate what one is doing otherwise it's not going to be able to grow so at the end of the meditation there needs to be a recapitulation how one did it or how one didn't do it whatever it is and what did one learn from it and in addition to that if it has been a good state to recognize its impermanence so there are three things which are extremely helpful if one takes meditation seriously if one doesn't take it seriously of course one doesn't have to do that the drowsy mind in meditation needs to be counteracted by a physical thing namely opening one's eyes and looking at the light if the mind is falling asleep one could have stayed in bed so it's better to open the eyes and look at the light if that doesn't help to stand up most people don't fall asleep standing up and then gently sit down again when the mind's awake again it's a waste of time it's much nicer to be asleep at home so if that's what's happening to counteract it before it falls into a state of complete drowsiness where nothing can be done anymore because one can't counteract it anymore it's our third hindrance and it is hindering us also in daily life of course and if we can see it happening we have time to do something about it if it is happening because we have asked the mind to please stop thinking and stay on the meditation subject we can also remember that the only time the mind knows where it stops thinking is the moment before falling asleep one can't fall asleep while thinking one's got to stop thinking to fall asleep that one moment before falling asleep is the moment that the mind actually knows so if it has been asked to please stop thinking and stay on the meditation subject it may get the mistaken idea that this is the time for sleep because that's what it knows it's familiar with that so to tell it in no uncertain terms that this is a totally different proposition it's supposed to meditate and not fall asleep it's like being absent it's not like being here it's like being absent when the mind is falling asleep so the three things to do at the end of the meditation is the recapitulation what one has done if it has been a good meditation how one got there and then if it has been bad why how what one has learned from it whatever it is it may be something that seems 
quite ordinary. All of that is helpful. And then recognize the impermanence of any state that may have occurred. So we have initial application, sustained application, and one-pointedness in all meditations. The other two states which I have described are that what most people would like, but very often the mind is not capable of doing it because it isn't trained, and so the person that's trying to do it doesn't train him or herself. It's a training like any other, it can be co compared to the training of an athlete who trains his or her body. This is a training of his or her mind. Since we cons consists of mind and body, we can make a choice what we would like to train. If we train the mind, we open up a totally new vision, a totally new perspective, a third dimension everything looks entirely different. And as it looks different, it also feels different. And as it feels different, we have, in the same body we were in before, and the same mind that we've always had, we have a different inner life. And no matter where we are and who we are, we all live according to our inner life. That's the only life we have. So these states of meditation counteracting the five hindrances automatically all need to be reinforced through the counteraction in daily life. Obviously, that is spiritual practice. And the one factor which is needed to make it all happen is mindfulness. Bare attention, knowing oneself, and not giving in to one's desires, not giving in to that which is most comfortable in any manner or form, but seeing that inner growth is possible and seeing it over and over again in everyday life. That makes the whole possibility of altered states of consciousness arise in every meditation. Before we do the meditation, if there's any question about anything, it doesn't have to have to do with what I've been talking about. This is the time to ask. Yes. No, not swept. <laughs> it's perfectly all right to have the feel of or the or the feel of the word because it keeps the mind interested. But if you get swept away by the word love, trying to figure out how to do it and whom to get for that, uh -uh. you're off and running. And if the word peace makes you think of all the peace movements in the world and which one you'd like to join, no. But the flavor of the word, yes, because that gives you an interest. And as long as the meditation isn't interesting, nobody does it. I'm just wondering because that in a way takes my attention to be away from the bread. Yes, there's too I'm much. I'm interested in the flavor of the word and I'm not the bread. What, 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 what,
the breath can be the rhythm that accompanies. It's a rhythm that is there for the in and out of the one word and the other. Try one of the words. It's a bit much. Two words, breath and the flavor. Do one word. See if that, if that works. See what works. Try out. Okay? But certainly the meaning does help to keep the interest going. But not when it goes off somewhere. Okay? Always here. Anything else? Well, that's the whole business. Sorry? Yes. Yes, it's feedback. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? There are no guarantees on anything. <laughs> Might stop meditating tomorrow. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. But recapitulation, yes, it, it helps you to have a pathway. And it's particularly important when the meditation actually works. But since that is the, uh, usually not the case, um, it's also helpful when it doesn't work to find out what makes it not work, to see what, what the, maybe there's a ever-recurrent thought pattern. Now, obviously, that doesn't make it work. So it's very important to find out all the things that are helpful, all the things that are not, and thereby find oneself a pathway which may lead, yes, to the absorption in a, bet, uh, in a quicker way, but who knows? Some people can do it quickly and some can, can't. There's no way of saying. That's what I've been talking about. The delightful sensation is the entry hall of the eight absorptions, which are the eight rooms, eight chambers in the beautiful mansion that we have within. The technical word is called meditative absorptions. In Pali, it's called jhana. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you take a long time, meaning it takes you half an hour to get there, or a long time it takes you 20 years to get there. What do you mean? Yes. Yes. If you have the time and the energy to do that, yes. Yes. Longer sits are, can be very helpful. Yes. Very helpful. <coughs> Well, if that would entail two or three hours, that's okay. But if it's 20 or 30 minutes, no. Put a timer on for an hour and a half or two. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you want to sit there two or three hours and you do that, that's fine. You don't need a timer. If you sit a long time, yes. Yes. And some people are better off with a timer, and some are not. Some people can do much better when they have a feeling of free time. You know, it's just doing it. But some need that 
discipline of the timer. One knows about oneself. <laughs> yes. What did what examination? Uh, determination. A determination, yes. Mm -hmm. See, uh, for example, I had a, I did a like, but I had a what you need to put your finger on or your mind on is what you actually did. What did you think when you sat down? Did you have gratitude? Did you have love for your breath? Did you have determination? Did you um, uh, think in a positive way? Did you sit differently? You've got to put your mind on what you actually did, not what was the cause. You've got to just recapitulate, not not um, uh, judge, it's not judgment, recapitulation what you actually did. And if it doesn't work, you recapitulate also what you actually did, and you will see that those things shouldn't be done. It's not, it's not judging which one was good and which one wasn't, just knowing, and then you're doing them again, the whole lot of them, until eventually you'll see that one is more important than another. Okay. Mm -hmm. You do what? I can't hear. Yeah. Well, can you? Well, can you concentrate for thirty minutes? Yes. Are you new to this? Yes, 30 minutes is a good time for a beginner. Mm -hmm. And what you do is after you have done this every single day, let's say for a month or so, then you add five minutes, do 35 minutes. And then you do that another month. And then you add another five minutes, like that. You know, It's better than starting at an hour and taking it off all the time. <laughs> yes? Well, I don't know, have you? Chasing something. I don't know, do you? Do you chase something? I don't know. A lot? Well, well maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it's quite obvious that I'm talking about states, mental states. And mental states can be this or that. Do you know what it feels like to be angry? Sorry? Do you know what it feels like? Okay. Do you think that's a good state to be in or a bad state to be in? Okay, well that's it, that's all. That's it. You're the judge, you're the jury. You do whatever you think is right.
That's all. You look at it and say, yeah, this is fine, I'll do it. And the other time you say, well, no, that didn't work, so I won't do it. You're the one. Nobody else. You're entirely in charge of this whole business. All that you're getting here are some guidelines, some information which you can drop at the drop of a hat, most people do. <laughs> Anything else? I think I, I thought I saw it. Yes. Habitual drowsiness. Yes. Uh, meditate with eyes open, first of all. And uh, meditate with eyes open, but down, not looking around, because looking around is very distracting. And um, don't eat before meditation. Eat after. It's the food makes drowsy. And also, find the time of day which is most likely to be non-drowsy. Can, one can ex uh, experiment. So these are all um, things one can do. Another thing the Buddha said to do against drowsiness is to give oneself a pep talk, to talk oneself into it and say, well, look, this is a time for meditation. This is not the time for sleeping. I can sleep at home. I can sleep in my bed. Sleeping is a, is a habit that one has anyway, so why do it now? And anything at all, any pep talk that is working, that can be used also. This is a very long-term uh, iteration. I think you suggested, uh, maybe not you, uh, that you can change the subject of meditation, perhaps change Yes, of course. Of course, that's, uh, that's quite possible too. That's if one falls asleep always when watching the breath, but obviously shouldn't be watching the breath. But uh, on a weekend such as this, it's uh, certainly no time uh, left to give many different subjects of meditation. I have already um, given subject of contemplation and I have given uh, uh, two, three kinds of meditation, walking, breath and loving kindness. There are many more many different ones. But if one is habitually falling asleep and watching the breast, certainly one should do something else. Um, sometimes the mind needs something that's more interesting. Like for instance, uh, maybe contemplating one's own death. Maybe the mind wakes up doing that. Uh, there are many insight methods of meditation that one can use. One can use the attention on sensation. One can use that, yes, the sensation method. That um, can be much more interesting. Much more is happening. But that takes a, takes a, takes a meditation course. <laughs> because there we have to have the uh, you know, surroundings, that, uh, the quiet surroundings and the mind that is somewhat concentrated to actually benefit from that. But there are many other things one can do also. There's some, uh, for instance, if one wants to become, have quiet um, tranquility, one can use the casinos, which are color discs. One doesn't have to use the breath. The Buddha taught the casinos, the loving-kindness meditation can bring calm and tranquility. I mean, the breath, is, the breath is only one method of many. The Buddha taught 40 different methods. 
breath is one of many. And if one is, for instance, counting and was falling asleep with the counting because it's so boring, one can try something else. One can watch the sensations into the body and out of the body. It might be more interesting. Anything is better than falling asleep. Anything at all. Watching impermanence is better. Much better. That can be more interesting, watching the impermanence. That can give rise to a real interest. Because the mind is inclined, at least in the beginning, to try and find something that's permanent. And so it looks around and searches here and searches there. So that can give some rise to some insight. That's not a, that's a, also a good substitute. No, that's insight. But inside, a little insight produces a little calm, a little calm produces a little insight. They're interwoven. It doesn't matter what one does. I mean, most people would like to become really calm and collected. And that's right, they should, you know, the meditation should bring that. But if the mind is getting sleepy from that, it's better to use insight method. Look at the impermanence. It's very, it can be quite interesting. Perhaps surviving the hours Mm-hmm, yep. Can do. Insight, maybe the, the, um, well, it's better to have the calm first and then the insight. If the mind can handle it, do the attention on the breath first and then watch the impermanence. If the mind can manage that, all right. If not, turn it around. One has to give in to the mind to a, a little extent. Not completely, because then one does what one has always done. Discursive thinking all over the place. But if one doesn't give in at all to it, but wants to force it completely, it may be so bulky that one doesn't have any success. So a little bit of the middle path. Mm. <laughs> no. Yes, stay with that one. The one that works is the right one. Yes, why not? But what for? But if if one has no, no, the mind's versatile enough without giving it some more versatility. No, no. If if you if one has a meditation method that brings the mind to a state of concentration, one stays with that method. Don't try anything else. The one that works is the right one. Yes. Could you comment briefly on, on posture or something? I understand trying one of the more difficult things on trying to posture is concentrating, setting up things to remain still and uh, physical still. And that's because I can't get comfortable. Yes. And um, at one point I, I, I was very comfortable, but then I found that I was going, I was getting to a drought. No, not like that. The um, first of all, the posture is a matter of habit. Having done it over and over again, eventually the body gets adjusted to that, just like the mind gets adjusted to that. It's a matter of habit. Um, and some people are more able to um, have their body at this uh, posture than others. Um, 
the other thing is that if one becomes concentrated, one doesn't feel the body, which is one of its benefits, um, because the body has a habit of being a nuisance. So it's very nice to be without that nuisance for a little while. Um, in the beginning, is this the beginning for you? Yes. yes. In the beginning, it's very important that you find some way of sitting which you find somewhat all right because fighting against the discomfort the whole time keeps you away from actually using your mind for something else. So I would suggest several possibilities. Use two, three or four cushions to sit on. It doesn't matter. Um, put your legs back in the back of and sit have the cushion between your legs if you like. Um, have a higher cushion so you can sit like on a little stool um, and if nothing helps sit on a chair. I always say to that nobody ever got enlightened in their legs. <laughs> Certainly a bit of perseverance is very good discipline because the mind needs to be disciplined but overdoing it is also no good because it, it sets up a rejection attitude and uh, the mind finally says, well, what do I need that for? You know, because, I mean, one doesn't experience any elevated states of consciousness. All one experiences is discomfort. And the mind quite rightly says, what do I need that for? I mean, there must be other ways of, uh, you know, having some other insights. So it, it's no use overdoing the discipline. On the other hand, it's also no use giving into it completely. So experiment. Get some more cushions and see if that's better, okay? or sitting and putting the legs back like that, or sideways or whatever. And then, as I explained yesterday, see what happens, sense contact, feeling, labeling, and then reaction, taking your mind off the reaction, putting it back on the breath, one, two or three times, and then when the mind says, oh, very interesting, but I can't sit like that, move. And move with the understanding that you've become a victim to the unpleasant feeling. We do it all the time, but here we become aware. It's perfectly all right. Yes. Okay, it's, uh, it's not difficult actually to recognize the difference. Um, the, um, the striving is connected and based on the achievement syndrome. It's wanting to get a result. But making the growing of the tomato. I've got to have the, the, the best tomatoes in the neighborhood instead of watching when you plant the seed. But making the effort is planting the seed, actually doing there, sitting with it, and doing it, but not <coughs> looking for something. So effort is necessary in anything we do. We have to make effort to get up in the morning, right? But if we have an idea in the mind, all the things that we have to achieve that day, the anxiety in the mind is uh, going to be very unpleasant. But just getting up, well, there's nothing really unpleasant about it. One just gets up. And it's the same here. One just sits there and, and does the best one can without expecting that there's something to come out of that. 
Well, that's the difference between the determination and the expectation, and also between the right effort and the striving. Just doing. There's also a question of the kind of concentration, you know, there's also something Surrender. That's it. The surrendering to it is the way to get the real concentration. Trying to be fixed on something, that's the misguided effort. The mind, when it wants to be fixed, it can't, it can't, because it's got a wanting in it. But surrendering and relaxing into lets go, and that letting go must get to the drowsy state, but it's a letting go of all the rest of the stuff that goes on in the mind. And that works. It's always a middle path in everything. Not too much of one and not too much of the other. A restless mind, an anxious mind, is a mind that wants to achieve. It's an achievement mind. And may not be achieving worldly things at all, may be quite contented with other things, but it still wants to achieve something. It's got it all planned out and it wants to achieve. And that's when we, that's what we can let go. We can let go of that, being in the moment. Anything else? Yes. What is the best way? Well, for each person, there's a different best way of doing that, I would think. One way is, to surrender is to give up all the rest of the things in the mind. That's one way of surrendering. One way of surrendering is to actually love what one is doing. That's the best surrender, to love what one is doing. And if one can love it because of one's own insight that this is the best thing one can do, then that's quite without any attachment. If the love comes because of an attachment to a guru or to, um, um, to an organization or something like that. It's still love and it can happen, but it's, and, and the surrender can happen, but it is an attachment which can be detrimental because one has expectations with, with attachment. So the pure love of knowing that one is doing the best possible thing is the best surrender. And the surrender is always connected with a feeling of giving oneself. And as one gives oneself, one reduces egocentricity. Not, I want to get this concentration because I want to have elevated states of consciousness, because I want to be a better person, because I want to show my kids I can really do it, or anything like that, nothing of the sort. I want to give up all the things that are in the mind and that are cruising around and creating some uh, anxiety and uh, difficulties. I want to give up all that. And I give, want to give myself to it. It's an absolutely essential aspect of meditation, surrender. Devotion is very helpful. And the devotion can arise out of many different causes. As I said, if it's a devotion or out of insight, it's the best one. If it's a devotion because of attachment, it also works, but not, not, it's not as pure. Yes. When you practice in self-love and being our best friend as an attitude before we meditate, um, what are we loving? Because 
it seems that there is so much of the mind that, or of the nature that is problematic and troublesome. Is it a larger self that we are doing in <laughs> the little self and the big one, the higher one. Yes, that is an attitude which doesn't really help so much when we think of ourselves as a small self and a big self because the small one is a nasty one and the big one is a nice one and we sort of alternate between the two and then we always think, well, actually, I want to be the other one and so we'll just forget about the nasty one. It doesn't work because all fantasy. What we are loving is we are creating a loving quality in the heart for a human being, whether little, big or medium-sized, it doesn't matter. And as we can do that for ourselves, we will eventually have no differentiation between those who are uh, exposing their small self and those that are exposing what we might call the higher self. We don't discriminate because we know the whole thing is an illusion anyway. So having been able to have this quite unconditional feeling for oneself, which is a quality in the heart and does not, is not based on our discriminative judgment, but just that there is a human being, that will bring us to the ability to do that. So uh, don't look at the qualities that you have or have not. Uh, it, they, they are of no concern. They don't have anything to do with it. It's just being a human being. That's good enough. You just think of yourself as a human being, that's all. And since there are so many around, one can practice all the time. Anything else? I mentioned yesterday that there are four supreme emotions and um, I explained only the first one so I like to explain the second one a little bit so that there is also some um, insight into that the first one is the is love which we established is a bit different from what we think love is which has as its far enemy hate and as its mere enemy attachment. And the second one is compassion. And it's quite easy to see the far enemy as being cruelty, but the near enemy to compassion is pity. And it appears to be the same thing. That's why it's called the near enemy. It's near in appearance, but it's an enemy. Because pity means that we're feeling sorry for someone. And so the other person having suffering, we're feeling sorry. So we are also in sorrow, which means we've got two sufferers instead of one. And nothing is gained by that. On the contrary, what we're doing is we're adding to the suffering in the world. So having pity for another person also separates us in a way in, in which we often feel I'm very sorry for that person but I'm glad it's not me and we also have that embedded in it have a fear that it could eventually be me so feeling sorry is not compassion 
feeling sorry is separation and additional sorrow, as the word quite easily depicts. Sorry and sorrow are the same word. So it doesn't really have the benefits of positive relationship to another person who is suffering. Compassion is a totally different state of the heart, but appears to be very similar. Com is with, passion is feeling, so it's empathy, it's with feeling. And it arises out of one's understanding of one's own suffering. So when we understand that we have ourselves suffering of many different sorts, physical, mental, emotional, occasioned by our own reactions, occasioned by our inability to remain peaceful, many different ways of having sorrow, of having suffering, and not resisting and rejecting it because it isn't what we want, but on the contrary, reacting to it with compassion, understanding it to be the human situation and having a feeling of care, warm caring for ourselves, then we can actually start having the same for others. We understand our own and their suffering, but we don't start to suffer with them, but we can feel with them and having been able to do something about our own suffering, and that's only possible if we can get our mind to such a state where we can actually have it under control and not let, let it rush from one thing to the next. If we are able to do that and have been able to help ourselves, we can also share that with others, how to help oneself out of suffering and they thereby may be able to share that. Real compassion therefore arises out of insight. And the same as with unconditional love has to start with oneself because insight arises out of inseeing into oneself. And the inseeing into oneself must bring about eventually a great deal of compassion for the difficulty of being a human being, for the difficulty of staying on an even keel and the many blockages and obstacles that are in our way. And then we can see that in others. Quite often <clears throat> other, another person may become quite unpleasant in speech or action and our natural reaction to that immediate instinctive reaction is dislike but if we give it a moment's thought we probably would recognize the fact that a person who is that unpleasant must be very unhappy and surely it's quite useless to dislike an unhappy person the only thing that's useful is to have compassion with an unhappy person so even though that person may not admit unhappiness, may not even tell us about it, may pretend to be quite all right and just be angry and abusive, it's obvious 
that a happy person does not become angry and abusive. It's only an unhappy one. And since we ourselves have been unhappy in the past, we know it's not a pleasant state of affairs, so we can then arouse our compassion. We have a much easier relationship to that other person then, rather than getting angry at them and trying to get rid of them. It's a much easier way of relating for us, ourselves. Whether that other person is going to be helped by it or not is a second question. We cannot predict results, nor is it useful to expect results. The only thing that's useful is to do the best one can. Compassion is also easier to arouse as a substitute for anger and dislike, easier than unconditional love. It's not so easy to love someone when one has just had the inclination to dislike them quite thoroughly. But it is easier to arouse compassion for them. So it is a very good way to use this particular emotion as a substitute for negative emotions. The negative emotions which arise so easily and make us ourselves unhappy. If we know that we ourselves are constantly trying to find happiness and very often do not succeed, that alone is enough to have compassion for ourselves. And having that is of course depends upon not looking for outside sources for happiness or unhappiness, but realizing the whole thing is happening inside of us. The outside sources are nothing but the triggers. As long as we're looking for those, that should bring us happiness or the outside ones that have brought us unhappiness, compassion isn't going to happen because then we just think we just weren't clever enough or we didn't get the right chances in life or anything of that nature and we won't be able to have that arising in us. A feeling of compassion for others, other people's suffering brings about a feeling of togetherness this feeling of togetherness is strengthened when our meditation becomes more concentrated. But even that alone is already a big help because this feeling of separation brings about also a feeling of being threatened by others. They uh, don't talk nice, they don't act nice, they don't like me, and all the things that we do carry around in our minds totally unnecessarily. So they don't like me. Well, that's their problem, isn't it? As long as I like them and have a feeling of togetherness and lovingness or compassion for them, my heart is working in the right direction. Their dislike is probably based on the fact that they are reacting instinctively. That doesn't mean that one doesn't listen to thought out and quite impartial criticism one can listen to that and make up one's mind whether it is justified or not. But just pure emotional dislike or emotional negative reaction from others is no cause for our own dislike or for our own unhappiness. It's strictly theirs. And 
because many people have a lot of trouble with that one, I'll tell you a story about it, which illustrates it very well. And because stories are easier to remember, it may help you to remember in daily life. The Buddha was a reformer. He did not want to originate a new religion, but like reformers usually have no success with their reforms. <clears throat> Jesus wanted to reform Judaism. He didn't have any success with that either. So a new religion was started, and the same happened to the Buddha. He wanted to reform Brahmanism, as it was called in that, at that time. Brahmanism is particularly interested, was and is, in placating the gods. And the people who do it are the Brahmins, the priest caste, then and now. And this priest caste um, was making a very good living, and are still making good living out of that, because the um, giving of gifts to the gods and uh, then being the intermediaries between the people and the gods was their job and is their job now. And the Buddha was trying to reform that, to tell people, do it yourself, there is no intermediary. And because of that, he was heartily disliked by the Brahmins, because obviously he was a, an obstruction to their livelihood and also an obstruction to their fame. And some of the Brahmins, however, understood what he was teaching and actually became his followers, but quite a lot of them were quite um, angry about him. So one of the angry ones came to one of his discourses and walked back and forth in front of him. And that alone is already impolite, that if um, a religious discourse is given to walk back and forth in front of the person. But when the Buddha had a moment's pause, this Brahmin started to abuse the Buddha. And he said to him that in very impolite language that he should be chased out of the country because he's teaching the wrong doctrine and he, is a break, he breaks up families because the young men were following him as monks and would not be able to work in the fields and uh, that one should not listen to him. And when he ran out of angry and abusive language, the Buddha said to him, Brahmin, tell me, do you sometimes have guests in your house? And the Brahmin said, yes, of course, I have sometimes guests in my house. And the Buddha said, and do you offer them food and drink? And the Brahmin said, well, of course I offer them food and drink. And the Buddha said, and if they do not accept your food and drink, to whom does it belong? The Brahmin said, well, it belongs to me, of course, belongs to me. The Buddha said, that's right, Brahmin, it belongs to you. It's a very important thing to remember. The abuse, the anger, the dislike, anything that another person is giving out does not have to be picked up. It belongs to the other person, especially if one doesn't accept it. So it belongs to you, Brahmin, it belongs to you. Now you may be able to remember that next time it happens. It happens to everybody, except that they are not Brahmins usually here in Australia. But it doesn't matter what they, who they are and what they are, it's just people. 
this happens all the time but you must also of course turn that around and remember that if you give it out it's yours and not to the person you're trying to give it to and even if the other person accepts it by getting worried angry and uh, unhappy about it it's still yours so the uh, it is a very important thing to know about that because one realizes more and more how one is oneself responsible for one's own happiness and unhappiness and as we are in all our feelings the center of the universe for the universe that we personally live in that's the center where we've got to start and compassion is an excellent start because all of us have difficulties nobody is exempt and we give these difficulties different names we call them sickness we call them problem we call them partners we call them children we call them jobs we call them money we call them all sorts of names but it's always the same thing it's difficulties problem suffering in pali dukkha D-U-K-K-H-A that's all it is and the Buddha said that's one of the three characteristics of the universe of the mundane worldly existence and when one can see through that eventually one day if one tries hard enough to have a real penetrating insight into that then comes the urgency to transcend and no longer look for the satisfaction on the mundane level so compassion for a human being is the first step for seeing things in their proper light and that human being needs to be us ourselves first because what we haven't got for ourselves we wouldn't have for others either because we would probably separate ourselves from that suffering they have and be very glad that we don't have it ourselves the connectedness, the togetherness that we can feel when we realize we have it the same difficulties everybody else has helps us also not to feel alone even though we may be alone we may be physically alone but we don't feel alone because everybody else is in the same boat as we are and not feeling alone also means that we don't have that feeling that another can do something to us because we don't want to do anything to them anything that is unpleasant so whatever is happening in our own heart will help us to keep the peacefulness and the um, warm and caring feeling for others alive and the warm and caring feeling for others it's the same as a warm and caring feeling for ourselves and as we spread it from the self-feeling to others we feel less and less the distinction between you and me or them and us that <clears throat> distinction is strictly an optical illusion the optical illusion which we all fall prey to which becomes our reality we live in an optical and in a mental illusion and it becomes our reality and as it becomes our reality we can't see anything else so this particular way of 
using our emotional capacity helps us also to go just a little beyond that. And as we go a little beyond that, of course, we do have greater perspective. If you can think of climbing a mountain, even if you get up on this mountain only a short distance, already you get a wider view. And with a wider view, you have a better perspective. If we see ourselves from a wider view, the perspective becomes far more in line with reality. Because amongst five billion human beings on this planet, there is this one called me. And amongst the planets in the universe, there is this one called Earth. And amongst the planets in one galaxy, there it is. And then there are so many other galaxies. And all that I'm concerned with is me and maybe the few people who live in my house. And there are galaxies and galaxies and planets and planets that remind the stars. And then in this plan, in this galaxy, there's this little planet. And on this little planet, there are five billion of us. Doesn't make sense the way we look at it. We keep forgetting this all the time. Compassion helps us. Compassion helps us to have a bit of a perspective which goes a little beyond just seeing that which is happening to us from morning to night. Because that what's happening to us from morning to night isn't totally satisfying, is it? It never is. And if we try to make it, it doesn't work either. The total satisfaction within the mundane situation has never yet been found. So it has to go a little further than that. Compassion has a companion, and the companion is sympathetic joy. Now, the two are companions because compassion works for another person's or lives with another person's suffering, whereas sympathetic joy lives with another person's happiness. Again, we try not to have this separation. The more we separate ourselves, the less happiness there is. Sympathetic joy has as its far enemy envy which is very easy to see, and most everybody falls prey to that one now and again or once in their lives, and so everybody knows what envy is like. The near enemy of sympathetic joy is hypocrisy. Just using the right words, but no feeling behind it. So sympathetic joy means that the joy of another person creates joy in us. It doesn't have to happen to me. I'm happy that it's happening at all. And as we're happy that it's happening at all, we're adding to the happiness in this universe, on this planet, rather than detracting from the happiness by being envious. And if we have any kind of consideration that there is a connectedness between beings and that we are all interdependent, then it will be interesting for us to add to the joyfulness rather than to add to the suffering. We don't have to be dependent on people's emotions, but we are interdependent 
on this planet by being here together at the same time. And sympathetic joy is an, a totally pure joy because it doesn't have any connotation of getting anything, of owning anything, of keeping anything, of having it, or of becoming anyone. It's just having joy with the joy of another. We don't even have to know what they're joyful about. If they tell us, that's fine. If they don't, it doesn't matter. They may be joyful about something that we wouldn't consider to be joyful. That too doesn't matter. It's the joy that counts. There's very little joy amongst human beings. They always need a real strong occasion for having some joy. Everyday kind of joy, most people don't even know what it feels like. So if it happens to someone that something good has happened to them, it has to go beyond the words, like congratulating somebody without any feeling behind it because it's a done thing. That's hypocrisy. And we often do it without even thinking about it. We're congratulating somebody else on, their, on the favorable occasion which has arisen for them because that's what people do. But to really arouse the inner joy because joy has come to someone, that is also so beneficial for us, not only because it takes away the separation feeling from others, but also it gives us an opportunity to have joy so many times and so many times more than we would ever have it otherwise. Because we don't have ourselves so many occasions when something nice happens. So now, having joy with others, we can have any occasion. And we don't have to look for artificial means to become joyful. Of course, if we have already experienced meditative joy, it's so much easier. Because we know what it feels like to be joyful and we are perfectly able and capable of reproducing that. But if we haven't uh, had that experience yet, we can also deliberately arouse it in us. Joy with others is also a giving, a giving up of one's own egocentricity. I don't have to have it, it's fine if they have it. It's giving one's joy to another person. Giving is the most effective way of losing some of this ego illusion of this egocentricity, it's got to be me, I'm going to have to have it, I've got to be it, I'm going to become it, I'll be the, the one. That illusion is the one that causes every problem under the sun. There isn't any other, no matter what name we give it. That is the dukkha, that is the problem, that illusion. So the giving, whatever giving we're doing, that giving starts us on the road to losing some of that illusion. We can see immediately when we start giving how happiness arises. How from the giving of material goods, from the giving of love, from the giving of compassion, from the giving of sympathetic joy, we ourselves derive happiness. And as we notice that, and we can't help but notice it. We will be imbued with the idea that giving is the way. 
Giving is another way of letting go. And the only way to see our own reality and our own spirituality is by letting go of all the ideas that we've ever had to accumulate. Whatever it may be, accumulate knowledge, accumulate opinions, accumulate viewpoints, accumulate teachers, accumulate whatever it is, abilities, all of that accumulation is all in the way, every bit of it. It's a debris in front of the door. The more there is, the harder it is to see the door. Giving of compassion, giving of joy, sympathetic joy, giving of loving kindness, all of that lets go of some of that and makes us see the reality of giving, makes us experience it, makes us experience the reality of giving giving in and giving in and giving up is the final resultant of insight giving in to that what really is and giving up all our opinions and notions the final reality of insight has to come go to that so we might as well start with giving and generosity has is always at the top of the list of the virtues which the buddha describes now, generosity has many facets. We can be generous with our skills and abilities. We can be generous with our time for others. We can be generous by being a good listener, generous with our helpfulness, generous with our love, generous with heart and mind. There are many ways of being generous. It's always at the top of the list of the virtues which are necessary for the path of purification. A path of purification is another word for, or another name, for the Buddha's teaching. And it's also sometimes called the teaching of cause and effect. And if we put the causes of generosity into motion, the effects for us are practically immediate. We don't have to wait for other lifetimes to reap the results of good karma. We reap the results of good karma right here and now almost immediately because if you are thinking of another person and you want to give something to another person it just be a, a small thing at that moment you're thinking of someone else not of yourself you're not trying to get something and gain something all you're trying to do is give and so there's no problem and there's happiness immediately and should the giving have a good result, namely the other person is getting happy, then one is even more delighted. Giving is the easiest way of working on one's own spiritual growth. If one can't do it very well, one needs to practice it. One can practice any skill. The fourth one of the supreme emotions is called the jewel the crown jewel of all emotions, its equanimity. And um, I won't say too much about it because it is bound up with insight. And its far enemies, of course, anxiety and restlessness and worry, but its near enemy is indifference. And it's called the near enemy because it appears to be the same. It has an outside appearance. It's sort of dressed up in the same clothes, but it's a totally different feeling. And that is something that is quite important to know for anyone who may have a suspicion that they're operating with indifference. 
it's not uncommon and particularly it's common in the English-speaking world. It sort of has um, a feeling about it that if it was something desirable, but it isn't. Because indifference is an armor. We've armored ourselves against our own emotions. And having done that, of course, we've armored ourselves against all of them, not just the unpleasant ones. Although the intention was to armor oneself against the unpleasant ones, the result is, of course, armor. And armor is a barrier for all of them. So there's no loving kindness, there's no love, and there's no compassion possible for the person who has, has had really indifference going well. And because such a, a person who has had indifference um, cultivated, and therefore the love and the compassion isn't coming out, meditation is very, very difficult. And now there are other reasons for difficult meditation, not only that one, but this one is, a, is also a strong reason, because one has to be able to give oneself wholeheartedly to the meditation. And if one has, has cut off one's heart from one's activities, how's one going to give it? So not being able to have a wholehearted relationship to whatever one is doing, it remains in the head. It's an intellectual enterprise. And as it becomes an intellectual enterprise, it's most unsatisfactory. And it is connected also with dislike. One doesn't really want to know about it. And as one doesn't want to know about it, one can't change anything, obviously. As one doesn't want to know about it and has a dislike of knowing about it um, and rejecting the knowing about it, there's no way that it can be changed in any way. Only we can change it if there is indifference, if we see the damage it does. It's damaging to oneself because it stops the emotions and it's very damaging to anyone that one should live with because that person, of course, is searching for the emotional contact which isn't forthcoming. Also a cause for the breakup of relationships when this happens in a very a strong way. A person who has indifference feels sometimes superior, superior to others because they get excited and they themselves don't, so they're superior, which is one result, which they're not at all, but they think they are. And the other result it can have is that they feel like a, a bystander, an observer. They're not in it. They're outside of it. They're sort of looking at it, as if there was a football game going on. They're not playing football. They're sitting there looking at it. The whole thing, everything that's going on, is like a football game. So it's not a way, a satisfactory way, but the person who cultivates that and develops that has done so because their own negative emotions played so much havoc with them in their reactions and in their heart that they couldn't handle it any longer and didn't know that you can change the negative emotions to positive ones rather than changing into indifference. It's a very insidious difficulty because it appears to be useful. It protects one apparently from negative emotions. But as I said before, it protects one equally from the positive emotions. It's like a fence which keeps out the cows, but at the same time also it keeps in the dog. 
it keeps the cows out and the dog in. I mean, it's the same thing. It's just a fence. So the fence is there for both ways, in and out. So if we keep the indifference in, we keep the love and compassion out. Equanimities are totally different and quite um, important emotion. It is even-mindedness, and it's based on the insight into impermanence. And it arises out of practice. It arises out of the practice of watching impermanence over and over again and recognizing that since everything changes all the time, and since there is nothing in the world, in the worldly life, that has to be achieved, all that is happening in the worldly life is just a movement in indifference, a movement that in impermanence, sorry, a movement which is constantly arising and ceasing. This movement in impermanence that we see in our own thoughts, in our own feelings, in our own body, in everything that concerns us, that no longer needs to be reacted to with either elation or depression. And that's when equanimity arises. Now, equanimity is not dullness. Nothing is nice anymore because nothing is awful anymore. But it's a feeling of inner joy which is not dependent and it's totally stable. It can no longer be pushed around. So it is the epitome of the emotions. It is the one which comes to four through the meditative states and also through the inside. It arises through both, through calm and inside. These are the four supreme emotions which are the Buddha's guideline towards getting our emotions purified. Just as there are four guidelines for getting the thoughts purified, the wholesome and to uh, cultivate the wholesome and to substitute the unwholesome. So if we are using some attention on our own inner being without the superiority feeling that we can actually do it and others can't, or the indifferent feeling of we don't want to be part of it, it's all much too difficult, we will be able to purify to the point where meditation becomes a reality in feeling all the things that happen when we go to the elevated states of consciousness are feelings, experiences are feelings of different kinds. So to purify one's emotions is an essential aspect of that. Before we do a meditation now, if you have any questions, <coughs> this is the time to ask them. Yes. We'll do a guided loving-kindness meditation now for the end of this um, meditation course. And just go back to the attention on the breath for a moment. 
And imagine that you have a beautiful white lotus flower growing in your heart, which opens all its petals until it's fully open. And a golden stream of light comes out of the center of the lotus flower and fills you from head to toe with warmth and light and love and surrounds you with a feeling of peacefulness, of contentment. Direct the golden stream of light from the center of your heart to the person sitting nearest you in this hall. Fill him or her with the warmth and light from your heart, with love, and surround him or her with peace and joy. Giving the best you have to give. the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to the hearts of everyone here bringing light and warmth and love to each person and surrounding each person with a sense and a feeling of peace and joy Think of your parents, whether they're still alive or not. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to them, filling them with gratitude, with warmth, with love, embracing them with peacefulness.
think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you, those you might be living with. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to their hearts, filling them with the warmth and the love from your heart and surrounding them with peace and with joy without expecting to get the same thing back. Think of all your friends, let them arise before your mind's eye. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to them, filling them from head to toe with the warmth and the love from your heart and embracing them with peacefulness, letting them feel the depths of your friendship. Think of all the people you meet in your everyday life. The neighbors, the people at work, the people you see and meet on the street, in the shops. Think of them all and let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to their hearts, filling them with the warmth and the love that comes from your heart and embracing them with peace and joy having the connectedness with them the togetherness Think of anyone whom you find difficult to love or towards whom you are indifferent and regard that as a blockage in your heart and let the warmth and the love flow so that the golden stream of light 